There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Claire McKenna and this is Changemakers. Talking to people at the forefront of change. The power of a conversation should never be underestimated. It shapes opinions, reframes perceptions and ultimately becomes part of the change process. I hope these conversations will help inspire you to become the change you'd like to see in the world. You're welcome to season two of Changemakers. How are you all? It is unquestionably a tough time to talk about change when there is so much of it going on in the way of turmoil following the invasion of Ukraine. As seen before in war across the globe historically and in more recent years, this has led to fear, death, tragedy and thousands of people displaced. I hope wherever you are at with it, you are doing okay and my hope remains with the good in people and that this will end in peace with value placed on people over power as it should be. This episode is launching the series on International Women's Day, so it feels a bit special. I have lots of incredible women featuring in this series and it was tough to pick who would be on today's episode. There are so many amazing women doing amazing work that even when I'm writing my wish list for the series, I often have to step back and make sure I'm balanced between genders and also that I'm being inclusive outside of the binary and that my list is diverse and inclusive. It's very important to me with this series. But today is a day for women and I've chosen someone I hugely admire. Our paths have crossed over the years on TV and radio as she's been launching various campaigns and I've always been struck by how she speaks and how she represents women. Today my guest is Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. Sarah featured heavily in discussion on gender-based violence following the murder of Ashling Murphy here in Ireland and We get into that in the piece, but we delve back into her past, her upbringing, her job choices, which were mainly motivated by a sense of fairness and and fighting for what's not fair. And an example by her parents of not being afraid to get involved with what she believed in. At the end of this interview, when we'd stopped recording, Sarah said she felt it had been a little self-indulgent as I asked her about her self personally as well as her work in places like Ruama on the board of the Women's Council and at Women's Aid and you'll also hear that lack of ego throughout the interview as she refuses to take accolade for achievement alone constantly referencing the teams around her who worked hard to bring about real change. Sarah as I said is a champion of women and fairness. We also talk about the patriarchal systems not serving men or non-binary and other minorities and how real change will be multi-layered from prevention and policy but also through society and the way we live, the conversations we have, the communities we build, what we call out and stand for. If you enjoy this podcast I would love if you would share it with your friends and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts it helps other people to find us. So Sarah Benson, you're very welcome to Changemakers. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for having me on. I had a little route through your LinkedIn profile. Did you get that email updating you that we all get that somebody somebody was having a look into your background? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm really bad on my LinkedIn. I don't, uh, I don't check it off enough. Every time I go on, there's like a, another hundred people who want to connect and a whole load of notifications. So uh, you managed to sneak by me there. I slipped through the net um, and looking back, I see that your some of your positions beforehand um, with Ruama and, and the Women's Council. And I'm just wondering, where did all of that stem from with your life growing up? How did that influence your studies and, and ultimately your career choices, do you think? 
Well, I would be the first to say I never had a, a clear vocational career path mapped out. I was not one of those children or young people who kind of knew what I wanted to do. And I think my career has ended up kind of shaped and framed through just kind of moving through the world and maybe some of the values and environments I was exposed to. Um, and I, I think growing up um, came from, I suppose, what you refer to as kind of a quite a liberal household. I went to the very first Educate Together school in the country. Um, and, uh, and so there would have been a lot of political discussion in my house. Um, my mum, you know, I remember her canvassing for Mary Robinson, both my parents um, canvassed against the Eighth Amendment <laughs> to the uh, uh, to the the Constitution. So um, uh, I, I think that I was always awake to our, you know, just exposed to even by osmosis, just um, a lot of discussions on kind of social issues, social discourse. I suppose I grew up as well in, in Dunleary in, in the kind of 70s and 80s, where we had a lot of serious problems there was a horrendous heroin problem you know there was a big economic crisis so um and that was very much on our doorstep so um uh i think i was always going to work in a field where it was around kind of human connection and uh, kind of a, a little bit around that social change and that started out um uh i did some volunteer work abroad because i didn't know what i wanted to do in college um and and then when I came back, um, I did a postgrad in gender and women's studies. Um, and I my first role then was in community development, and that was working with the traveler community, um, but very specifically with women um, and with children. And I, I suppose ever since then, my whole kind of career trajectory has been um, uh, kind of honing that more and more down to not just social justice issues, but those that really impact on women. And I suppose the last two decades of my work has been very particularly focused on combating um, violence against women, male violence against women. What are the issues for women in the in the travelling community? Well, I mean, I have to be very, first and foremost, say I'm not a member of the travelling community, so I, I can't kind of speak for them. I, I think what... I can say as an ally, which I hope I am, is that, you know, the the issues of discrimination against the traveller community in this country supersede even the, the problem, problematic discrimination and racism, which we also see against other migrant communities. We have something very deeply ingrained um, and, you know, how that falls upon traveller women in particular in terms of their burden of care work, the you know, just that very practical thing of if you don't have, you know, if you're the primary carer, you know, and in, in, in the household and you're in uh, an accommodation that doesn't have proper running water, that doesn't have proper access to refuse, you know, where, um, you know, you're basically your entire living environment is is uh, um, is one that's a challenge just day to day. You know, that in and of itself is going to impede your your opportunities, uh, you know, for uh you know empowerment for action um so i think that was something that that really struck me is just how extraordinary i, I ran a, a a kind of a pre-training program for what became a primary healthcare uh project and i used to be astonished i used to be in my little house in in east wall and on a really rainy day a really mucky day i would be like oh god i have to get up and i have to get out to wallhudders and and i'd be thinking there are women who are living at the side of the road in places with no electricity, they will get up, they will clean their trailer, they will get their children out to school and then they will come down and they will expect me to be there. And every day I thought of that, I was like, well, you know, then I better show up because really, you know, comparatively, I am absolutely in, in clover here. So I don't know, I have just huge admiration for the women in the traveller community. They're amazing survivors and, and increasingly more and more and more amazing advocates, you know, in terms of their lived experience as women, um, as, you know, proud members of an ethnic minority. We see them 
you know, women represented in um, in the Shannad, you know, as playwrights, you know, I just, yeah, I think they're extraordinary uh, women. Yeah, hugely rich in, in, in culture. Um, and I, I suppose some of the many problems that they face are the same as, as all women, just further compounded by some of the problems that you spoke about there. Um, and the, the us and them mentality that a, a lot seem to feel in this country. I'm always fascinated, and it was the driving force behind this podcast, in people that are spurred on to make change and feel they can make a difference. Where did that come from in, in you, do you think? And and when you approach something like your work there, like your work with Ruama, even to today, with women's aid, are you looking to make a difference or are you working day by day, project by project? Well, I think where it came from is was never a big grand design or a feeling of I want to change the world. And I think that that's very healthy and helpful, because if you start to feel like I'm going to change the world, it can be very overwhelming very, very quickly because there's so much to change. I think um I think where my work focus, uh, but also it's, it was involuntary work and things like that, was a sense of fairness. I think that's probably the word that was like something just not being fair and like, well, why is that like that? That's just not fair. Um, that's probably, and that sounds really childlike and childish, but I think that that's where it came from because it's been there, you know, and as I say, I grew up in a household and I had broader family who were involved in, human rights work and, 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 you know, social activism and, you know, uh, and so those were conversations that were had, you know, in my home when, when I was young and growing up and, and a lot of it centered in what was, what was fair and what was not fair. Um, and I suppose as a woman, um, you know, we're half of the population of the globe and, uh, and if we have that as a starting point, you know, we, we don't have gender equality. It, it, it is not a, a reality in any one place in the world. Of course, you may have individuals, you know, um, through, you know, accident or luck of, of race or, or, you know, privilege, you know, who may be doing better than other women. Um, but at the same time, as if you have a comparison of a woman, you know, uh, compared with a man of exactly the same level of privilege, access to resources, there will still be an advantage to the man in that situation because we are born into a society that has millennia of, of, of uh, very unhelpful traditional gender stereotypes to overcome and systems and structures that were built and created uh, to fit that and to to perpetuate it, so um, so that that's where we get huge, and that's where it can get overwhelming. But if you just break it down to something being fair, um, then it makes the work doable. And and I suppose um, what really really started to take shape in my mind was, and that was through witnessing it, through being exposed to it, through having you know people close to me subjected to it, was the the violence and the harm and the risk. Uh, associated uh, by the accident of your birth as female. Um, and I think that probably concentrated me in terms of if I'm going to pick something that I'm really going to try and make some inroads into, you know, where I can see laws that are failing, where I can see systems that are failing, where I can see responses that are failing, you know, that's maybe the chunk that I'm going to focus on. So tell me a bit about your time at Ruama. You might remind people who may not be aware I mean I think you were responsible for for really creating awareness around Ruama and the, and the work that was done there but for those who, who may have missed that or, or need reminding maybe tell us a little bit about your time there uh, yeah sure I mean I worked in as I say in community development for a number of years and then I, I moved into working on domestic violence and I was the manager of the national domestic violence helpline for a number of years and I suppose I was very, very happy in that work. It was incredible. I got to do all the things that I, I love doing. I got to combine frontline work with training, with advocacy, you know. Um, it was wonderful. But after over seven years, you kind of, I felt I kind of hit a plateau and I started looking for other things. And there was this small little organization that I had been aware of through some of my 
kind of um, networking and and some of the work I was doing on you know with, with my own organization you know kind of on a cross-cutting um, area and when I when I saw that the CEO position was up for grabs I really didn't know a whole lot about the organization but I did know that they worked on a really tough issue, which was the issue of prostitution and sex trafficking, both tough issues, both obviously intersecting. Um, but I thought, yeah, th- this could be really interesting as a new, you know, a new challenge. And and it was certainly an issue that I, I had had a really, I suppose I'd had a long evolving thought process around prostitution and or as it's sometimes referred to now as like kind of prostitution sex work debate. And I had evolved from one position where I had I had spent I've been in Amsterdam quite a few times and I had spent time there doing my postgrad with a friend who um, she was doing her master's on pornography and its impact on violence domestic violence specifically actually and this will tell you oh, this is aging me seriously now that was at a time when uh, for her to do her research uh, it was really hard for her to actually get access to what kind of porn was out there, what was available in Ireland. Um, even though we knew men were getting their hands on it, it was really hard for women. Um, so we decided to go to Amsterdam and um, uh, we, we kind of made it a kind of a holiday stroke research project. And so we spent a lot of time in the pornography shops in the red light district in Amsterdam. Because and you wouldn't so have had social media, I suppose. No, now we can media. do no internet. When you look at it now, it's yeah. astonishing. Like I have two teenagers and like the vigilance with which we tried to kind of keep their devices safe as they've been growing up once they were allowed to have them. Um, but I also know just from my work, unfortunately, is like that the levels of exposure to like incredibly hardcore misogynistic porn is, you know, free and at the click of a finger um, away. And then, though, it was like, you know, DVD or not DVDs, even videos, videos and sex clubs <laughs> and, you know, um, but it was nonetheless really some really brutal stuff. So anyway, that that kind of that wasn't my that wasn't my first time there. But we had a lot of spent a lot of time in the area. And at that time, the Dutch were looking at uh just just uh, in the debates around their legislation there and they were saying well they'd legalize it and they, that would make it safe and there'd be unions for the women and it would take organized crime out of it and all of that and i remember genuinely think well look who am i to say you know what a woman would or wouldn't do with her body but uh, and, and also this sounds good because clearly this is horrendous because we could see how awful it was we could see pimps everywhere you could see um and so i thought okay that 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 makes sense but then I kind of evolved in my position as to like, is there any way to make something that is kind of fundamentally exploitative that requires in order to actually fulfill the demands of the market for want of a better word, you know, such huge numbers of women um, that you're, you're always going to have exploitation of vulnerability and you're also going to have that hard edge. And so it proved, I mean, the Dutch experiment has been an absolute disaster. So I was interested in doing that work. I was interested in kind of looking at both. Again, it was an organization in Bruhama that worked both on the kind of the the structural change, the legislative side of things, but also on that front line as well. And also, I I didn't know a lot, I'll be honest, about human trafficking. And so it was, you know, an interesting new challenge. And what I learned there and what I learned from the women who I, I got to meet with and work with and through the transnational connections, because, um, trafficking and, and organized prostitution in Ireland is overwhelmingly international in terms of the, the range of migrant women who are, are brought in, um, some knowingly, but then really heavily exploited and some completely unknowingly and, you know, um, who would fit the definition of trafficking um, and the levels of organized crime and, and some of the worst things I've ever encountered in terms of what human beings will do to each other, particularly to women. Um, and we would have worked, you know, with a, a small number of um, young vulnerable men and uh, trans women as well, who would be a significant minority in the sex trade. But it really brought home to me that that whole system of prostitution is one that I think really is the manifestation of the the worst misogyny Um It won't, it doesn't exist without, you know, um, uh, that as I say that that level of exploiting the most vulnerable women um 
and and that's what's prized. I mean, that was some of the things that I found really hard at first. And I and I was like, well, I, you know, I have to actually face up to this because this is the reality. Is like, for example, uh, we had a street outreach project. So that was women on the street who would often have different circumstances, perhaps maybe from the women who might be indoors. And most of the sex trade is indoors, but you will still have a, a cohort who are out on the street who may have kind of certain chaotic complications in their lives, like maybe substance misuse, maybe homeless. Um, um, but you would see the most vulnerable woman on the street. So a woman maybe who's heavily pregnant or a woman who has like a, a visible injury and the buyers would be targeting her first. And I remember thinking, what is this about? And I really do, you know, this isn't about sex. This is about power um, and exertion of power Um and I found that really hard at first, but then that really did galvanize me in terms of kind of doing further research. I was in a lot of different countries. I met and, and ended up uh, the chair, actually, of a, an organization of frontline organizations from countries from Nepal, India, South Africa, Brazil, um, a, you know, a, a range of European countries, a number of um, North American countries, uh, all working, understanding what I came to really understand, which is that fundamentally the system of prostitution is an exploitation. Um, and the, the person who loses the most is the person who is bought, the person who is, you know, at that, at that core transaction. And the person who drives the trade is the buyer. And that's, you know, something that I think we worked really hard. We were partners with, you know, the Immigrant Council, um, pretty well all of the domestic and sexual violence organizations but others like children's children's rights organizations like even macron Affirma, others you know who came on board in ireland uh, to form the turn off the red light campaign who, who realized that you know hitting demand actually is the key and really importantly r- removing the sanction on the individual who is in prostitution to to say look actually the circumstances that draw the vast majority in there are ones that you know, were through constraint of choice uh, at best. And so they should not be targeted. There should be supports. And there's still work to do, you know, to create more exit pathways, to create more resources. But um, that work is continuing and it's improving. And the government really has taken it on now as a commitment. Um, So, yeah, I think it was an incredible nine years I was there um we we passed legislation in the north of Ireland and then we were we contributed to the passing of the sexual offenses act um as part of the turn off the red light campaign but we also worked with the guards around changing their policies and approaches and getting them to support the idea of decriminalizing uh women which was which was a big challenge um but but we got there and they they became kind of evangelized on it in terms of the the national unit that specializes on this so you know it, it feels like it was good work but the the survivors were really fundamental to that as well it takes some extraordinary courage to speak out um out of your trauma uh, and to name yourself with uh, you know and associate yourself with an experience which is unfortunately still very stigmatizing for a lot of women it shouldn't be um but it is and it's interesting and harrowing to to hear you say that because often in the discussion, I think it's accepted that no girl ever says that that's what she wants to be when she grows up. But it's often thrown in there that, you know, for some women, it's their choice and it can be empowering. But in your experience, there was exploitation and vulnerability from the word go. Um, I have, I mean, look, there, you, you will always have more people who come to something from a range of different experiences. And I think where I, my experience has been is that in the majority of cases, um, you are coming from a situation of at best utterly constrained choice, um, and at worst, the most egregious coercion, uh, in the form of human trafficking, which is the absolute worst violation of somebody's human rights human dignity um and so uh and i and i would have met women over the years as well who kind of transition between that when in the sex trade when working as escorts or um who did articulate that point of view which is also fully understandable because if that's what you're doing and you're doing a day in and day out and that's the way that you're you know um um you know making your financial ends meet then 
you know, to turn around and say, well, no, this is awful. I hate it. Like that, so you can't create that level of cognitive dissonance. It's not possible. But what you do find is when we, you know, you meet with women and they're starting to feel it take its toll on them um, is that that narrative often did change. I'm not saying it changes for everybody. And there'll be women who, um, you know, um, will never change their position. But our experience, my experience has been just in the in the vast majority of cases that at worst women are kind of like gritting their teeth and getting through it. Um, um, and even in, in many of the cases where, you know, women identify as being independent, they don't have third party control. There's often a trauma and there's quite a lot of research about this as well. There is often a trauma in, in their past, which, you know, um, maybe shape their experience there's there's an absolutely extraordinary book which is just coming out now by someone i feel privileged to know and her name is mia doring and it's um uh, it's her memoir it's any girl it's 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 um uh published um now it's it's out now um but just out and i would encourage anybody to read it she was never um uh, under the control of a third party, but she articulates the trauma of the experience um, of simply un- unwanted sex with, you know, with, with men who don't have that level. They don't have any esteem or respect. They are buying access to override all of that. Um, and she articulates that. And then you have the the thousands of women uh, across the world hundreds and hundreds here in this country who are under the thumb of really ruthless horrible um pimps and traffickers and the vast majority of the sex trade in ireland is uh, is under organized crime that's well recognized now um and well articulated so these are often very young girls from very impoverished backgrounds who are just bundled up and shuttled around the place often don't know where they are and they're identified as independent escorts just the same as, um, you know, somebody who is independent. You won't find anyone on a website in Ireland who is not independent, but the, the majority are not. So I think we have to look at the, the the harm done to the majority and then the principle being that it's it's there's no human right to have sex and there's certainly no human right to buy sex. So the, the principle also at a social level is saying that it's not okay to buy access to another human being. That's the principle that's enshrined in law. And how did you keep your head together through all of that? As you said, sometimes you bore witness to some of the most grievous acts between one human and another. So you mentioned earlier were in your first work, you know, struggling out of your house in East Wall and then reminding yourself to keep going this seemed to even get more taxing on your spirit. How did you manage to disassociate yourself? I'm sure you nearly had to at times. I don't really think about it that way. I I, I think I didn't have to live that experience. I am, as you just say, bearing witness to somebody who has lived that experience. So again, I what I used to kind of... I used to kind of sit in amazement after hearing some of the experiences from women who were still like tough survivors, you know, Um, and that doesn't mean they weren't like, you know, expressing the whole gamut of, of understandable emotions, but at their core, they, they were surviving. They were, they were getting through. That isn't to say they weren't articulating the harm and the damage that had been done, but they were sitting there and they had lived and they had got through, um, and they were driving forward and, you know, uh, and they were striving towards the opportunities that they maybe had been robbed of for years and years, like education, like, you know, uh, accommodation, independence. Um, so bearing witness is the easy part. <laughs> um, what the survivors had gone through, that was the tough stuff. But look, I'm not being, don't want to be facetious. That work does take an impact. That's also well recognized and documented i've been very lucky to have worked in organizations that have recognized that and also you know so putting in place very explicit ways of you know accessing self-care i i've had an external supervisor who's traveled with me through three different roles now who is uh, absolutely fantastic in terms of you know uh giving me that space that headspace to just kind of talk sometimes stream of conscious about things and then steer me back to okay well you know 
what is it I can control? What can I manage? How do I, where, where are there maybe red flags and what am I going to do to soothe that? So um, I think actually as a sector, the community and voluntary sector um, can be very good compared to, for example, those maybe who work in social work um, uh, and other areas um, who don't have access to that, who maybe also don't have supportive um uh, internal kind of line management systems where we you know we really make sure that everyone always has a, you know a regular time to touch base with you know the person who's their support their supervisor you know so things can get caught early if you know people are struggling and and I would always have had my either manager or in recent years a series of really excellent supportive chairs um, and then really consciously looking at okay, when I feel overwhelmed, how am I going to mitigate that? I'm not a religious person. I I mentioned I went to the first Educate Together. So my parents actually managed to get me in there without me having to be baptized because at that stage you... um, you couldn't get into a school if you weren't baptized into some faith or another. So um, I've never been part of organized religion. So like finding things like nature is something that I kind of, you know, nature would be my church, my tiny little garden that gets neglected for weeks. And then I'll throw myself at it and get my hands into the dirt and watching little things grow that I've planted, you know, like finding joy and things, you know, that's that's the way you cope with it. And I think it's also being self-aware enough at different stages to say, well, actually, you know, maybe maybe this is taking its toll. And the way you can kind of know that is, you know, that you're not giving your best anymore. Um, and uh, that's always something to be vigilant to. But that isn't, you know, that doesn't mean you, you, you jack in the whole thing. It means you look at, OK, what do I need to do a little less of? And what can I do a little more of? So maybe I would have moved away a little over the years from the more frontline and to, to doing still some of that, but less of it and, and maybe putting more attention into the system change piece. So, yeah, you got to know where your limits are. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Can we talk about joining the Women's Council of Ireland then in in 2012? Do you think much has changed for women in the 10 years since then? Uh, Well, I was a board member, um, so I did four consecutive terms as an elected board member. So I don't want to take any credit for the in-depth work of the of the executive team. Um, So we we, obviously that so my role was at that kind of more um, uh, kind of governance higher level. But it was a privilege to be a part of. And in that time, you know, we had some really groundbreaking moves um probably the most standout one although you know again there were many over the years um but the one that probably got the most attention was the repealing the eighth amendment but again i would emphatically give credit to the executive team there who i i know how i mean they worked double their their contracted hours um to get that done as as part of the 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 campaign coordinating committee with them with the, uh, the the coalition to repeal the eighth and arc, um, so what was really fascinating for me was it was sitting at a table with 
an amazing range of other women, you know, all involved in different aspects of, um, you know, uh, women's rights, uh, women's equality, you know, so you had those coming from the uh, migrant rights sector, you know, um, the, the, um, the, you know, traveller community from uh, some of the rural organisations, um, you know, academic sides of things, women in business. Uh, so it was a, a, an amazing privilege to work with them over the years uh, to, to to play our small part in supporting the, the executive team. Um, it really does shine a light when you kind of are at that table on a regular basis, just how many different intersecting areas of work there are to achieve gender equality and you know and, and there's a lot of work to done so that's everything from you know uh quotas for representation in state boards and in our uh, in our political system because god we have an awful lot to do there still to uh, affordable child care to recognition of care work um to uh you know um that obviously violence against women would have been the area i was most knowledgeable of because of my own work experience um but, you know, disability rights, you know, that intersectional feminism where, you you know, we, we take it as a given that, unfortunately, we still have work to do, you know, for all women. But then we have to add that intersectional lens in terms of discrimination based on race or ability, um, you know, or being, you know, uh, any kind of a minority or minoritized group. Um, and so for me, it was a real education actually being a part of that group. And so hopefully made some small contribution, but I, I feel I probably gained more <laughs> in, in the round. And when we talk about equality, can we only speak up for women's issues as women or are we looking to fix a broken system that doesn't serve men correctly either? Or is that just too much for us as women to take on? Have we got enough on our own plate? No, I think that's a good question and a fair question. I, um, I've been doing a lot of thinking on this. I mean, I've thought about it before, obviously, but it's kind of brought it back front and center again recently, just with some of the um, horrendous cases, you know, there's Ashley Murphy's murder, but also women's aid, we maintain the the femicide watch the femicide report so we have the archive we keep the record since 1996 of all women murdered in this country and when any woman dies you know in violent circumstances it reminds us of all of the women um you know in women's aid you know all of them uh you know they're all named um and they all leave a whole community behind them um so there's been such a conversation around like how do we prevent this um this this worst worst outcome in terms of male violence and um and even prior to this our last um uh, event for the 16 days against violence against women i i um had the great pleasure of interviewing jackson katz who uh is a, a male activist against male violence um and uh he wrote a great book, which I'd encourage anyone to read. I'm actually re-listening to it now. I'm listening to it on audio book now because I find I fall asleep. <laughs> I'm so tired in the evening, but I can listen to it while walking and stuff. So it's called The Macho Paradox. And so what I'm going to say now draws a lot on him and, uh, you know, um, uh, Michael Kimmel and uh, Robert Jensen and, you know, other men who have really thought about this issue as well. And I think that... Um, in order to achieve a society that is equal, you know, there, there is no doubt that there is such a thing as male privilege in just the same way that in most parts of the world there is such a, a thing as white privilege. Um, and so, of course, if you're a white male, then you're probably you're at the you're at the apex in terms of your privilege. But I think it's also true to say that while, of course, there is disadvantage on women and there's so much for us to fight for and there are impacts and consequences which are often fatal for us around the globe in terms of trying to push back against um, uh, that negative, uh, awful pigeonholing feminine stereotype, you know, that that, that a patriarchal system, you know, um, uh, articulates as being the best fit for, 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 for women. At the same time, men are not... Uh, homogenous either although I probably can't say that because literally homogenous means <laughs> that but there you know there's an intersectionality amongst men as well and the patriarchal system 
does not serve men well in terms of their ability to express themselves in their diversity, their ability to express their feelings. That that binary um, gender stereotype of masculine feminine doesn't serve the masculine uh, doesn't serve men well, and and that also uh, includes circumstances where men are. Uh, have terrible violence visited upon them, including murder, because the vast majority of violence against men is also perpetrated by men. Um, And uh, often uh, by men who have internalized that really uh, interpretation of masculinity as, you know, a show of strength, a show of force, you know, uh, attack is the best form of defense, um, you know, not leaning into expressing and articulating feelings. Uh, It's definitely also interlaced with homophobia as well. And we find this really interestingly when we do have men who will stand up amongst their peers and shout out sexist behaviors. Often they they have their own masculinity attacked um, by their own peers um, and their sexuality attacked, which is, you know, again, this expression of both sexism and and homophobia. so, you know, I do think that us working together for a society that recognizes and embraces diversity for everybody. And of course, we don't have just binaries of, of, of men and women. Now, we also have those who identify as non-binary and binary fluid. You know, how do they how are they accommodated in this patriarchal system? They're not, you know. Um, so I think that there's great gains to be made Um by working together and that allyship that we're looking for from men will also contribute to uh, men as peers and among themselves as peers, giving greater oxygen and space to to um, to themselves in terms of how they want to express themselves, how they want to communicate, how they want to be in the world. Yeah, it does feel like there is a, a motivation to, to tear down the systems that aren't serving us any longer but it's going to be something that's that's going to take time you know at the moment it's still building but I hope that the momentum will continue. Can we get into your position that you currently hold as CEO of Women's Aid? When did your move there come about? Uh, I joined Women's Aid as CEO in um, the middle of 2019. Um, as I had actually worked with Women's Aid before, um, but but I was more years out of it than I was in. I had worked there before as the National Helpline Manager. Um, so uh, my predecessor, Margaret Martin, we knew each other very, very well and she was retiring. And uh, I became aware of the position because she contacted and told me <laughs> she was retiring. <laughs> so um, that's how it came to be on my radar. Um, what was but- your initial reaction to that call? Well, I was at an interesting point in my life. I was, um, uh, it was interesting and it was a great opportunity because Margaret, given that she was retiring, different to perhaps the CEO who might have been um, moving to a new opportunity, the turnaround might have been quite a lot tighter and it, 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 I wouldn't have had maybe the, the, the time to kind of think and reflect on it that I, I did have the benefit of um, was that I was also doing a, a master's in business studies at the time um, in, in the IMI. So, of course, in doing that, um, I was thinking about my next step. You know, that that was the the, the, the main um, focus for, for my um, MBS was um, strategy and innovation and leadership and, and executive coaching. I trained as an executive coach. And in doing so, of course, you, you get to be coached and... Uh, um, and so I had been thinking, what would my next move be? And um, it is always a question around returning to an organization. Is it a backwards move or a forwards move? But actually, there had been quite a lengthy gap. Uh, as I say, I was more years out than in. The, the organization had moved physical location, which I don't know why, but it seemed important to me. <laughs> um, um, and... I think the critical thing was um, I saw that there was opportunity there. I mean, there had been, um, we had all come through that horrendous recession and the impact of that. And we were all kind of clawing our, when I say we, like all of us who were leading um, 
community and voluntary organizations and charities just kind of clawing our way back up, just about taking breath. And I felt very happy with what I had achieved in Ruhama. That was the first thing. Um, you know, there, there was some really clear um, um, kind of milestones, you know, that, that I, I felt really pleased with and I felt the organization was in really good shape and that its service model was brilliant, leaving behind like a really excellent service manager who, who you know, could drive and expand that work. Um, and, uh, and and there was work to do on domestic violence. I could see that um, and I had a good sense of, I had a good sense of it also because I was um, privileged to be in spaces, uh, you know, representative spaces such as sitting on the monitoring committee for the national strategy to combat domestic sexual and gender-based violence. Um, and just just had the, the launch of the third one now the third the draft of the third one so I knew what the stakes were in the sector I also felt like I had a very good network amongst my peers a lot from the work on the National Women's Council board but also as part of the turn off the red light campaign and through others like you know um my personal involvement in the repeal the eighth just at a personal level um and and so i felt okay i i know the people um and i know what probably the key priorities are and that felt pretty good in terms of moving into something new i felt like i could hit the ground running rather than going into something completely new um and having to spend months and months and months just getting up on my brief and, you know, um, and that did take me a while in Ruhama, for example, because human trafficking and cheapers, like the EU legislation, the international legislation, it was dizzying and then starting to learn. So that took me a little while, actually, whereas I felt I could come in here and I could probably kind of get stuck in pretty quickly. Um, and so I did. And, and I'm glad I made that choice in terms of that particular move because it was only what seven months later that COVID kicked in and so if I hadn't been up on my brief at that stage I I think I would have been in trouble so uh, I was lucky in that sense. And calls about domestic violence went through the roof during the lockdowns can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah that was well when COVID happened I was actually it was really weird thinking back to it now I was in um I was supposed to be in New York for something I had participated in several times before, which was the Commission on the Status of Women. And I was going there because at that time I was the acting chairperson for the National Women's Council. and I was going with that hat on. But then suddenly things were kind of getting a bit like, oh, it looks like this thing might be cancelled. Can you believe it? And and I had already booked my accommodation and, and the flights and the flights were non-refundable. So I asked the funder, look, if I go... Um, you know, uh, there'll be an empty seat or there'll be me and I'll look after myself. And so I spent spending a week in New York, um, in, in Manhattan, um, just like in a little apartment and moseying around and, uh, and, and more and more things were shutting down and I was getting up at five in the morning to log into work. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is actually looking really serious. And then we had a colleague who is based in Italy and Italy had already kind of been hit so hard um, and it was starting, it's, it started its lockdown before anybody else in terms of Europe. And she was saying, this is terrible, terrible, terrible for women in dangerous homes. And we were like, oh gosh, yeah, we can see what's going to happen here. So I got back that Friday, I squeaked out after uh, Donald Trump had literally shut the flights in from Europe off and I got out um, before they shut everything off and it was straight to work. And I... I I don't know um, that I would say that COVID caused a huge spike in domestic violence. What I would say is where there was domestic violence, it absolutely exacerbated it to a huge degree. Um, And our concern was immediately to kind of get a message out there to warn uh, our politicians, our legislators, our policymakers that firstly, the measures you're going to take are going to make this very, very hard. Um, and secondly, but please, anyone who is in distress or in need, know that we're all here. And so we got some brilliant media um, response completely free. 
we recorded a really simple radio ad that just, you know, mentioned, talked about the helpline. We got free print ads. And so we included our information, you know, our colleague Safe Ireland's website, the guard, the information, um, our colleagues in the mail advice line and in the men's development network, we, we tried to be inclusive and, um, and then the government rode in with the Still Here campaign, which was great, still a great website, and that it was for both the domestic and the sexual violence services. And then, yeah, you know, women did call and they kept calling and they were calling at different hours of the day and night to when they used to. Um, and what our team was telling us was that their distress was just even more acute, if that was possible, than it had been before. And they're feeling trapped in terms of their options, going to court, even being able to go down and stay with their mom or their sister. All of those kind of avenues were shut off. So, yeah, it's been a very tough time. Um, and uh, and then for those who are not living with their abuser, that spike in online abuse, and that would be not uniquely, but particularly um younger women and so we run the two into you um website and campaign and 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 we really actually through the generosity of of the public and through donors um you know we're able to run national research because we really felt also um so much focus was on the home home is not safe but also we didn't want to leave behind those who may be experiencing abuse in different forms even if they didn't live with their abuser um so yeah a lot of work and and then i i commend our colleagues, we don't run refuge ourselves. We signpost to all of the services around the country, but the refuges in particular had to adapt in astonishing ways to kind of deal with the fact that they had communal living setups and to, to manage restrictions. And, you know, there was private companies that came in to offer kind of overflow accommodation, you know, to meet maybe low risk um, families needs, but, it was, yeah, it, it has been because it's kind of still continuing a little bit um, an extraordinary um, couple of years. But I think we're coming out of it with a really strengthened sense of community. And I mean that in terms of the whole Irish community, but also the community of the certainly the domestic violence sector um, and our colleagues in the sexual violence organisations. And then that collaboration um, and engagement with um legislators and policymakers like you know those are always there's always tensions in those relationships because it's our job to also hold you know that you know policymakers legislators to account and to flag gaps but also there there was some really really good examples of collaboration and listening and okay how can we work together and there's a lot of work going on now um a kind of staggering amount of work going on now on a lot of systems legal systems criminal justice systems um, and other strategies as well. Because so, that is so silver, silver lining, kind of. I don't want to say that, but yeah, yeah. Maybe because that's what's so necessary, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the aid in women's aid has to be there, but you have to ensure that the support is there for those in abusive situations with enough spaces in refuge centers, with legislation, with even how we set up society if couples are struggling to afford a house how is a woman going to think she can make it on her own and 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 find her way you know you need it on all levels to make sure that somebody has an option to to, to get out absolutely yeah and and you've named a few different kind of aspects of a response and and I think that's it there is no one size fits all you know um response to combat domestic sexual and gender-based violence and and that's the hard edge of an unequal society um and I mean gender unequal but I also mean unequal in terms of you know um disabled people um you know certain ethnic minorities like there there's there's those layers of inequality which make those you know, those who maybe have multiple different kind of intersecting experiences, um, even more vulnerable. And so our society uh, must look to kind of, it's that kind of a rising tide lifts all boats, not always the case. We have to be really conscious of that. And we do have a new national strategy now. There's been a big, extensive consultation. It has that very clear gender analysis, which is vital, even though it, it also will respond to, you know, um, other genders, as, as uh, we, we've talked about. Um, but it does primarily focus on recognising where the, the, the majority of the, the harm and the risk is. 
but that has four pillars and, and and they mirror the Istanbul Convention, which is an EU convention that Ireland has ratified. And it's the EU convention to um, prevent and combat all forms of violence against women and girls. And that has four pillars. And, you know, um, if you think of it like a table uh, has four legs, you know, it'll fall if one leg, you know, isn't isn't there. And so they are um, prevention. Uh, because obviously we in Women's Aid, and I'm sure our colleagues as well, do not want to exist in the future. Um, you know, if somebody's contacting us, the damage has been done, the harm has been perpetrated. So prevention, uh, protection, obviously, and so that's support and services for those who need um, prosecution, because in many cases we're talking about criminal acts um, and we need sanctions to deter. Um, but the other then is a policy, a integrated policy, and we have greater hopes now with the new plan that that is something that government are really looking at taking on board is there is a role for many different departments uh, to, to meet those needs. For some, it'll be a very significant part of their portfolio. For the others, maybe not so much. But once we give visibility to it and see where they are contributing to one of those pillars, if not multiple pillars, then you know we really have a shot of actually doing something. But then it's not all on government as well. Like as a community as a society there's still a heavy burden of victim blaming and stigma that attaches to to victims and survivors uh inappropriately and and not properly towards perpetrators so um that's the kind of work we have to do in our homes in our communities with our colleagues with our peers with our classmates talk to you without discussing the death of of Ashling Murphy and the outpouring from the country and the globe we're looking at at Ireland and the way it was shook and i suppose i'm i'm conscious of it retaining the pedestal with which it was put on because she was so representative of the best of Ireland between what she did for a living, between her ties within the community, with music, with people and and, and the, where it was and how it was and, and all of that. But I was also conscious that it was one of many stories. What do you think was was different about this one and was it a, a watershed moment do you think finally um was it a watershed moment i don't know and i think if you ask me that question in a year then i'll be able to answer it with a higher degree of confidence i hope in a year i would say yes um i don't know our colleagues in the uk in the naya project who um maintain the equivalent of, of our femicide report um, uh, have pointed out that in the year after Sarah Everard was murdered to very similar reaction, a hundred more women were murdered in the United Kingdom. And um, that's really chilling to me. Um, and I think what we need to do is harness what have been the key questions, but also the key um, areas where there seems to be a, an open door or a, 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 an opening in the door around kind of moving further on that community response piece. Um, the fact is, you know, um, 13% of women who are murdered in this country will be murdered by a stranger. Um, so that's the minority the majority will be killed by somebody known to them and the most likely person will be their current or former intimate partner. The second next likely will be a male family member. Um, so we have to remember that that is where, you know, the, the risk occurs. But at the same time, I fully realise, in fact, I emotionally connect to the fact that um, what happened to Ashling Murphy um, was a manifestation of every woman's worst nightmare because while the stranger attack you know and that may be the the sexual assault the rape the physical assault the murder by a stranger may be the rarity what we experience 
in the community. And I think this is what this really hit a chord with is you may be walking home and two or three guys walk by you and, you know, they stop and they part and they make you walk through them. And one of them might say something um, and the others might laugh and they won't touch you and they won't follow you. But what they're saying in that moment is we could do whatever we wanted and you wouldn't be able to stop it. And that's what creates the hypervigilance, I think, that, you know, most, if not all women um, feel in public in certain circumstances more than others. But it can happen in broad daylight if you have that experience. You could be walking on a sunny street and have that experience and it will have that effect that your blood will just run cold and you'll put your head down and you'll, you know, quicken your step and you'll just hope I'm not going to turn around, I'm not going to turn around, please let them not be following me. And I th- I just give that scenario because I find that when I when I say that, nearly every woman I speak to knows exactly what I'm talking about. And Ashley Murphy's murder in that context is the scenario where they they do follow and, you know, the worst does happen. And I think that that's the connecting point is, you know, it's it's the implicit possibility and the fact that women don't know which man will or won't actually act on that um, expression of power and dominance and, and and threat that happens in those scenarios, um, even if you know it's a bunch of teenagers and they themselves walk away just snickering and thinking it's hilarious. You know, if they're if they're not even aware of the impact they have, the impact is had. Yeah, and there was a there was a shift I think as well with a with a lot of men who wouldn't dream of attacking a woman or anybody for that matter who became more aware of that fear and will be more conscious in a situation to act in a way to make a woman feel more safe, which ultimately we wish didn't have to be the case and that we hope will be eradicated. But I think as well as the the public outcry, I felt a shift within policymakers and I did feel very happy that we have a female justice minister in Helen McEntee and I just hope her, her national strategy makes the changes that are necessary on um, a legislative platform. But as you say, it's 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 multi-pronged in, in what needs to change. I'm conscious that we are running out of your precious time, but because this goes out on International Women's Day, I wanted to ask your thoughts on the status of a, a woman now and where you hope that will be because there's been so much of a shift through the last few generations from women seen in a very traditional role then it seemed to morph into women having it all and now we seem to be moving into to something different what are your hopes for for women on international women's day what I hope is that we can recognize that there's still work to do. We can recognize that society, you know, we're working against many hundreds of years of um, a patriarchal system, but that does not mean that there is not astonishing, you know, um, exceptionality, you know, uh, and skill and talent and vibrancy, you know, um, amongst all uh, women. And, you know, the fact that we live in a particular society that we have been born into doesn't preclude us celebrating that, articulating it, grasping it. And, you know, on on International Women's Day, I hope that is what women will do. At the same time, you know, it, it may be an expression of, you know, um, uh, you know, a rallying cry around, you know, we, we see the work to be done, but we also need to celebrate ourselves for ourselves because if women don't celebrate women, then, you know, um, uh, you know, then who will, <laughs> you know? So I hope that we will just celebrate our amazing, you know, diverse um, u- uniqueness um, and, you know, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll plow on and we'll plow forward. And, and I would encourage every woman to look for something that just gives them joy and to, to um, 
create a moment in their day um, that they can just sit and, you know, reflect on that. And, um, you know, because you can't fight all the time and that's not what happens anyway. There is joy, there is, you know, beauty, there is friendship, there is love, there is companionship. And I think, you know, um, that, that celebrating that um, as, as a sisterhood uh, would be a great thing to do. Absolutely. Sarah Benson, CEO of Women's Aid. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.